Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, but don't adjust the settings on your podcast listening platform of choice because you're not hearing a distorted version of Ed Straw's voice. It's Scott Mitchell, and this is how I actually sound. I've dethroned Ed for a special edition of the Race F1 podcast to mark Mercedes' 7th Constructors title and 100th win in the V6 Turbo Hybrid era. We'll be exploring the fascinating story of how this powerhouse came to be with insight from engine guru Andy Cowell, chief designer John Owen, and the recollections of Ed Straw and Mark Hughes who were on the ground and telling the story as it happened. Ed, I was going to say welcome, but that would be a little bit like welcoming you into your own home, wouldn't it? How, how are you feeling about being on the receiving end of the questions for a change? Well, I'm liking the fact that I can kind of sit back, relax and let you do all the work, but I'm a little bit worried to extend that house metaphor that you're going to end up burning it down. So I'll, I'll be relaxing with just 5% of my brain keeping an eye on you, not blundering, but uh, the pressure the pressure really is on you this time. Yeah, don't worry. Anything involving me should always be treated with at least mild trepidation, so you don't have to feel too bad. Being worried about what exactly I'm going to do to your precious podcast, but my other guest is the foremost F1 journalist amongst the race's ragtag trio, Mark Hughes. Mark, what's more exciting, waiting for your first sight of F1's new V6 turbo hybrid era in 2014 or appearing on a podcast hosted by me? Most foremost, you mean oldest. I'm definitely the oldest. Uh, you're the youngest, Ed's the heaviest. Um... Yeah, I, I think probably um, seeing the cars for the first time, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I saw I saw them in action first time in FP1 Albert Park, and it seemed to be in such a long time coming these cars because it'd been argued about, uh, well, it was still being argued about. Argued about. Um, the Australian promoter was saying he'd paid for the F1 noise and wasn't getting what he'd paid for um, for so long. With the FIA insisting on pushing this concept through against the wishes of significant numbers of the teams. Um, especially Red Bull. Uh, and then Ferrari had insisted on the concept being modified, adding more cylinders, so they'd been postponed and argued over, but now here they were at last in the metal, these radical new era cars. It had the excitement of the new, even if the actual sounds were more intriguing than exciting. Yeah, and that sort of long gestation period for for, for these uh, for these engines is is a good place to start because we don't have uh, we don't have a huge amount of time to to cover several years of of F1 history. That's how how long in the making the Mercedes breakthrough was. So to talk about why they were so good in 2014, we need to start a few years earlier. As I said, it's well known that Mercedes was very well prepared for this new engine era, but it's probably less well known or well remembered that F1 was actually once intent on an inline four-cylinder engine rather than a V6, and the new rules were going to come into force in 2013. And that commitment was made at the back end of 2010. Mercedes leapt into action pretty quickly. It built a single-cylinder version of the inline four, then went even further and produced an engine that it had head castings and a crankcase ready for. Ed, Andy Cow, the, the former Mercedes high-performance powertrains boss, told me that they threw the inline four in the skip when the rules changed in the summer of 20, 2011. But you claim to have seen at least seen a, a version of what Mercedes was, was working on. What did you see and how different a set of rules are we talking here? Yeah, there was a, well, I presume it's still there, but there was a four-cylinder block on display on the mezzanine level at Bricksworth uh, last time as I was there. 
it was a big change because not only do you have the very obvious fact that you've gained 50% more cylinders, but the whole configuration changes, the size changes, the weight changes. As a knock-on effect of the six-pot, you have to tweak the chassis rules as well to accommodate it better. And of course, the inline-four configuration is, is very different because you have to mount it in the car in a very different way, whereas the V6 can be a, a properly stressed member. So you're really changing everything, including how you package the various ancillaries. You don't take an inline four and adapt it as such. You really have to design your V6 from the ground up. So although it didn't destroy all the work that had been done, it was quite a big reset for them. And obviously that's reflected in the fact they gave an extra year before the rules came in. Yeah, so by the time you get into the summer of 2011, F1 abandons its original plan and it commits to the to the V6 formula. And as Ed says, push back the introduction by one year to, to 2014. So pros and cons to this. The manufacturers now have two and a half years to get their engines ready for, for testing in Australia 2014, but the rules have changed. And here's how Cal says that news went down at Mercedes. When it changed from the inline four to the V6, yeah, we went home. We were grumpy. We had a glass of wine. <laughs> we but we dusted ourselves down and we came back the very next day and we said, we're going to have a V6 running before Christmas. And we did have a V6 mule engine running before Christmas. And so we, um, uh, we, we reacted with action. Mark, uh, Cal's adamant that Mercedes's reaction to this sort of setback of sorts was aided by its experience with the Kurs project. Um, and he said that was a massive boost because a lot of investment had gone into Bricksworth to tool the factory up. And that meant that when the hybrid formula came into view, Mercedes had the experience and the equipment to take on a lot of the engine program itself. How much of a boost was that? Yeah, given the great head start. It wasn't just the equipment. It was, it was having the knowledge in, un, under, the, under their roof. And they decided right from the inception of the curse program with the V8 that they needed their own in-house expertise. With, uh, others were buying it in. And they recruited from the electric technology industry. And there was one key signing, which I think it was about 2007, 2008, who brought a broad understanding under the Bricksworth roof and was able to shorten the knowledge building phase and help all these brilliant mechanical engineers learn about this new technology. So there were later recruitments from the outside too, but this first one was made, I think it was in the winter of 2007. And not only did that allow them to dictate their own destiny, but it meant when there was a problem... It wasn't a case of scheduling a conference call or arguing about whose responsibility the root of the problem was. It, it was just, here's a problem, how do we as a group solve it? And the others, Renault and Ferrari, just contracted this side out of it to Magneti Morelli. And it was also very significantly helpful, I think, that Mercedes, the two halves of it, the, the Bricksworth and Brackley, was one team under that Mercedes umbrella in any meetings between departments was no longer a concern that you might be giving away IP to a third party. And that cross-fertilization between chassis and engine groups ended up being key to one of the biggest building advantages of that engine. It was the, the chassis group, not, not the engine group, it was the chassis group that first came up with the question that said, what's the feasibility of splitting the turbo? And they were looking at it for packaging reasons. Um, Andy Cowell was brilliant at getting that whole group of people working as a group um, with minimal losses in the system. Um, and that's part of the integration as well. Just like an engine designer would design an engine with minimal losses, he did the same with a group of people, but with flesh and blood rather than bearings and oil. Yeah, I think when the, when the, engine, the, when the engine program bosses could basically speak to one another under the same roof or, or a few miles down the road, 
that's a that's a big advantage. That's not to say that Stuttgart was cut out completely, but Andy Andy Cow tended to only have to go to Germany when he needed to ask for for a bit more money. But we'll, we will come to a, to a story about that shortly. Um, as Mark mentioned, they, from the 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 split of the turbo and compressor arrangement at the request of the chassis side was is obviously a big example of the ambition of the Mercedes power unit. But the, the ambition also came from the approach that that was taken through the development cycle. So the leadership team across Brackley and Bricksworth effectively designed three engines, including one so-called unbreakable design that clocked in at around 250 kilos, which was more than 100 kilos heavier than the eventual race engine would be in 2014. I think it was 145 kilos. That one was for performance work. Mercedes made another engine that was very fragile, which would be the, the reliability engine. And then the third engine was a marriage of the two, which we're going to call from here on out the, the race variant. Now, this this split engine approach meant that it could work on performance without being affected by reliability and develop reliability without holding back performance. A polite description of that 250 kilo engine is that it prioritized substance over, over style. And apparently it shocked then Mercedes boss Ross Braun when he first saw it. HPP's priority was to ensure that the, the internals of the engines, like the, the pistons and the conrods, were, were nice and neatly detailed because they were basically the style that Mercedes wanted to race with. But Cal says that everything around that didn't have to be pretty. I will never forget when um, when Ross Braun went into the test cell and saw that engine. You know, it, it was a it was a it was a big engine. The the front cover needed several large chaps to to lift on and and so on. And I I was shouting at people if they did light waiting on the bits that weren't moving. I said, "You're just wasting your time and the manufacturing guy's time. Come on, all you need is the internal bits to be nice." <laughs> and when Ross saw it, he was like, "You know, <laughs> how are we going to fit that in a car? <laughs> <laughs> like, how <laughs> how on this planet are we going to fit that in a car?" I said, "Well, that's the next journey." <laughs> Ed, the the idea of Mercedes building an engine over 100 kilos heavier than what it actually needed sounds like overkill, but there were rumours that other manufacturers were losing dyno time with a single test engine, basically. Every time it broke, you, you were waiting to do both sides of, uh, of the job. So how smart was Mercedes to effectively split reliability and performance into two streams? And what does it say about the commitment and the foresight that they brought to this project? Yeah, it's just very good strategic project management. And I think it's rooted in understanding how complicated the challenge of these engines were. It wasn't just another race engine, should we say, which you could do in a more normal way. Mark talked about the importance of having everything under the same metaphorical, if not literal, uh, roof. That in itself isn't actually enough. You have to do things the right way within that. By having separate streams, if you like, reduced bottlenecks, you can tackle problems independently, so your development should be more rapid, and crucially, you'll therefore stumble on problems earlier than you otherwise would. So if there is something fundamental you might need to roll back on, you're doing that earlier than you might otherwise, rather than just bumping up against a problem that's a little bit further upstream, shall we say, before you, you get to it. Of course, the key is at the back end of that process, how you manage to combine everything together. So even though they they were splitting it that way, I guess the real genius was ensuring that they were still connected enough to still be working in the same direction to actually come up with a total product that could be reconciled into into one. But it, it was just a very sensible way of doing things. And crucially, the, the basic idea was executed well. That's very often where things go wrong. People can identify an idea. You can think, well, okay, we'll split it this way. Great. But if you can't execute that well, and that's a difficult part, then it means nothing. 
And a case in point is that Braun says that uh, he found out from Ferrari uh, later on that Ferrari wanted to go down that split turbo arrangement. They'd had that the same sort of idea, but it came far too late in, in, in the project. They did, didn't have time to, to make the, the, the preparations and do everything that they needed to do to turn it into, into reality. So, so they were, but the others were, were just on, on, on the back foot. But just because Mercedes was this well prepared doesn't mean that it avoided the problems that the other manufacturers were struck by. It just was able to confront those problems sooner. It was with the race variant engine that Mercedes reached a potential tipping point for the engine project in the summer of 2013. There was an October-November deadline to get the final version fired up, and Mercedes also needed to share the engine's design details with its customers. But the engine couldn't do a power curve, and it would spend an hour in the test cell before heading off to what Cal calls intensive care for a, for a full rebuild. Mercedes tracks the progress of its projects with quality gates. This isn't particularly remarkable in itself. It's basically a colour defines whether something's ahead of schedule, on track or behind. And it's common in F1 for these to be red because the teams are always pushing the deadlines to the absolute limit and getting it done the, the night before. But at a company meeting on the Friday of the British Grand Prix in 2013, Mercedes had to admit that it was in trouble. This is how Cal remembers that. We were all sat there going, this is the brightest red quality gate we've ever had. We've now um, signed up Williams to join us for 2014 because we suspect that McLaren will be departing in 2015 and it'd be good to maintain at least three teams. So we've got four cars expecting the power unit. Um, the investment that had gone into the capability at Brackley was manifesting itself with a um, with, with a good season in, in 2013, you know, winning races and, and taking the fight to, to Red Bull. Um, and we, we couldn't do a power curve. Yeah. We couldn't do a power curve. We've got all sorts of life support systems making the power unit work. And we'd got this vision of eight cars in Melbourne wanting this power unit and, um, and, trying to work out how many sets of hardware we actually needed to take to not completely embarrass ourselves and then realising we need to start making in about two months' time. Mark, by this point, Cal says that Bricksworth is being motivated entirely by the prospect of all the Mercedes-powered cars either being parked at the side of the track in Australia in March or even worse, stuck in the garage because they'd run out of replacement engines to load in. Were there any rumblings at the time that Mercedes felt like it was in trouble or did it feel like everyone was in a massive race against time to get these engines ready? No, there was specific um, uh, stories about the, the Mercedes engines around about that time, around British Grand Prix time. The thing wouldn't run on the dyno for more than a few minutes and there were, there were areas of deep concern, yeah. But that said, we assumed the others were just in as much trouble as because this was absolutely stepping on, on the unknown. It's just that... Renault was in Viri and Ferrari Maranello, so the, the scuttle bucket you get from the group, group of British teams perhaps wasn't so active. But even even if they were in trouble that time, the, the others, it wouldn't have made that any less terrifying for Andy and his guys at Bricksworth. It seemed that likely that everybody was having a, a you know a, a bit of a, a bit of a scary time, and you know one of the. In terms of um, the, the how new the technology was, um, I remember Andy Cowell saying he'd, he'd been talking to one of his automotive colleagues in Stuttgart um, a couple of years ahead of the the the, the, the new formula, and explaining what uh, how big the battery 
would be allowed to be and um, what what power they, they were going to require from it. And the, the guy said, that's like double anything that we've ever done. He said, that's a 10-year project. You'll never get it done. He said, well, we'll have to get it done because it's got to be in the car in, in 12 months' time, so it will be done. And it's just that mentality and it just, you know, that that's how how Formula One progresses some stuff so quickly, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, it, it got a bit messy, I think. Uh, but that's, you know, given, given the newness of the technology, that's, uh, I guess, absolutely the, the way it was inevitably going to be. Yeah, Cal says that basically when they had this big sort of emergency meeting basically in the summer of 2013 they 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 had to confront the fact that they were not where they wanted to be but they did know that the others were were struggling as well so there was still this incredible opportunity and they knew if they could just get on top of it there was a chance here to do something that maybe the others weren't weren't capable of so never one never ones to to back down from a fight mercedes response was basically to stop all non-essential activities and switch the end goal from winning the championship in 2014 to basically just being ready for, for for Melbourne. And staff agreed to do an extra 10 hours of work a week. They were redeployed to more critical areas. Basically, if you were one of the top guys at Bricksworth, you weren't allowed to be messing around with your little side projects or pet projects. It was all hands to the pump. And essentially, Bricksworth was on an emergency footing. But as you heard from Cal just now, what made the engine project even more critical in the summer of 2013 was how well the Mercedes Works team was doing on track. The full stories of Mercedes' arrival as a, as a manufacturer entry and the Braun 2009 season, they're probably best saved for our Bring Back V10s podcast if we can ever actually convince Glenn Freeman to do a V8 episode. But the short version is that when Mercedes took over Braun GP, on the surface it looked like the purchase of a turnkey title-winning operation. But in reality, the Honda withdrawal would meant that Brackley's resources behind the scenes had been depleted and when Mercedes took over, it was banking on the ill-fated resource restriction agreement, bringing other teams down to the level that Braun GP had naturally fallen to. And Mercedes was so convinced by the anticipated level of spending that it actually cut Ross Braun's first budget proposal for the first year by £29 million. Eventually, the RRA was kicked into touch and Mercedes realised investment was needed. It actually briefly considered withdrawing its support altogether after 2011, but instead it decided to commit the necessary funding. So by 2012, Mercedes had the money and they had the personnel they wanted. But as chief designer John Owen explains, the team still needed to get internal departments pulling in the same direction. The car that started it all really in the current time was um, always going to be the um, W04, um, which was a 2013 car. And that car was the first car to have everything let's say, done the right way, um, the structures, the right people in the right places, and um, sort of a single-minded philosophy to um, how we were going to go approach the car and all its challenges and complexities. And um, that, 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 in a way, is nice because it sort of shows um, the fact that the team was very much heading to the front of the grid. Um, regardless of hybrid areas or not, to be honest. Ed, we'll come to John's comment about Mercedes' ascension being inevitable shortly, but first, it's pretty clear that WO4 represents quite a big breakthrough for Mercedes. It was the first product of that new Mercedes mentality and, and clearly a very useful statement of intent for the future. But that mentality was basically everyone should work together and pull in the same direction, which sounds immensely obvious and easy. So why isn't it? It's a question of how you implement that. Very often, people will argue for that sort of approach, but then behave in a way that's completely counter to it. So I think 
in order to do that, you have to have very clear goals set and also a, a good understanding of the way your goals interact with those of other departments. For example, you can make the best you can make the best engine you possibly could imagine in Formula One, but if you put it in a poor chassis, you're not going to win races in the championship. That's obviously a very simplified suggestion, but these kind of dichotomies are there all across the whole company, all the various different departments competing. And that team, going back a very, very long way, I don't think it was a serious a serious a problem by this time. But if you go back to the BAR days, there's a lot of talk about the kind of department rivalries, etc. And it was very politicised. And of course, that BAR team went through Honda, through Braun, and then became Mercedes eventually. So they were able to come up with that. And the 2013 car was an interesting one because it was just a good, sensible concept. The 2012 car was the one that got the breakthrough victory, the first for the, the revived Mercedes Works team. But it was in an erratic part of the season with the tyres making things a bit all over the place. And overall, the performance wasn't anything particularly special. But there's a number of things interacting here. Also, the fact that Mercedes had the fifth biggest budget in 2011 when they were working on the 12 car. But in 2012, they had the second biggest budget. So this feeds back into what you were saying about them eschewing the resource restriction agreement. And they were very much not the first to do that. They felt obliged to do it. And the 13 car was the sum of this process. It was just a good sensible package it had good strengths it rode the curbs well aerodynamically it was good it had the hydraulically linked suspension good sensible coander exhaust design they didn't go down the more flashy aggressive route because they didn't think they could get that to work the kind of red bull approach but the car had serious pace although that was mitigated as the season went on for various reasons and they did have big trouble with thermal degradation it just means you get a more even package so that mindset, that mentality that they managed to create is realised in the in the whole of the car. But the key is just making it not political. It's not your department versus my department. And the way that you prevent that is really from the top because if you don't have good leadership from the top, that sort of thing will naturally happen because effectively you force different departments into operating in that more competitive way. Yeah, it just took Mercedes a little while to get to the level that everyone expected it to be at this was obviously a huge manufacturer coming in and 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 clearly making a big commitment with a works team but it had also inherited that that title win in 2009 team so that progression well regression really from 2010 to, to 2012 was was I guess quite surprising to people on on, on the outside but there's a there's a story that uh, that Ross Braun tells in in his book about when when Toto Wolff came across from Williams, he actually gave the Mercedes board quite a good dose of reality because Toto came in and basically said, we've got the same budget as Williams, but we've got much more expensive drivers. So the net spend was was lower. So as Mercedes piles in a little bit more money, as it has this fundamental shift, this step change in how it goes about designing F1 cars, coincides with Lewis Hamilton's arrival. Nico Rosberg is clearly developing into a, a top-line F1 driver. The team's suddenly making a big step forward, and this is what Cal was referring to about taking the fight to Red Bull in 2013. That included Hamilton's first win for Mercedes in Hungary before the summer break, and it also meant that Mercedes was Red Bull's biggest rival and retained an outside shot at the title going into the second half of the year. But then Red Bull obliterated everybody after the shutdown, and Sebastian Vettel won nine races on the spin. What's quite funny about this is that Mercedes was privately quite pleased about it because once the WO4's potential was clear, it had served its purpose and the 2013 season wasn't the priority anymore. This is when full attention turned to the 2014 car, which had started way back in 2011 when Jeff Willis was hired and he was basically given the project in the conceptual stage 
And over the next 12 to 18 months, it was handed over to head of the engineering group, Aldo Costa, who started to turn it into reality. And Ross Braun was still in charge of Mercedes at this point, And he was, and I assume remains, a big advocate of putting people in charge of such long-term projects and letting them focus on it. He wrote in his book that unless we have an earthquake and we're in a massive crisis, then they stay out of the daily mainstream tasks. It pains me when people aren't left alone to get on with their future project. Mark, all the appreciation for Mercedes' early preparation for 2014 tends to go towards its engine work, for obvious reasons. But the car project was big as well. The noses were lowered significantly. The front and rear wing dimensions changed. Exhaust blowing was a thing of the past. When people think about the dawn of the hybrid era, do you reckon they overlook the extent of the car's transformation in 2014? Because these aren't small changes, are they? They weren't. These were um, some of the most significant aero changes in the regs that had been seen for many years. Um, and uh, the combine, I would say, it was the biggest regulation change we, we've we've seen. Um, particularly the the restricted width of the front wing, which put its outer end smack in the middle of the the tire width rather than level with the sidewall, which it had previously been. This made getting adequate outwash very challenging, and getting rid of the beam wing. So the and the exhaust placement was changed to banish the blowing, as you said. So the combined effect of that. Was, it made it much more difficult to join up the airflow from the diffuser to the underside of the rear wing. Um, th- these are massive changes to the regulations on their own, even without an entirely new power unit formula thrown in for good measure. So, yeah, it was, I mean, everyone was um, right up against it in just, just in, in that area alone. So by putting so much focus on 2014 early on, Mercedes was nudging its way ahead of the game on the chassis side, as well as the engine side. But Red Bull didn't seem to have the same plan or or foresight. Braun claims in his book that Red Bull always seemed to be for the now, the tomorrow, and the very short term. And Adrian Newey's team developed to the end of 2013, having also appeared to put very little effort into Renault to help them design a new engine. Those are Braun's words, not mine. I can't speak for for what Red Bull were, were doing there. Braun seems to have a slightly better idea. It might sound like a bit of a dig, but Mercedes remains convinced that Red Bull was effectively duped into cracking on and and distracting itself during that 2013 season. This is what Owen has to say about that. If your vision is one of long-term success in the sport, you have to sort of plan and look at the long term. And the way the W4 was running early in the early in 2013, we thought to us, you know, it's not slow. It's quite a decent car and it might be second, it might be third, it's not going to be first. Um, it's actually a big step forward. So realistically, we wanted to move our focus to 2014. And I think we now know from people who are working at Red Bull in 2013, who have since joined us, that the one thing that the W04 did is it put them under pressure to defend in 2013, um, and it stopped them looking at 2014. And that was... Um, that was actually really, really effective because if you can make your competitor think you're um, capturing them in, in 2013, then they have to also spend resource. Whilst in reality, we were we were fully on to 2014 with the engine and the um, chassis. Ed, what do you reckon? Did did Mercedes trick Red Bull during 2013, particularly with Hamilton winning just before the the summer break, or was it just primed to take part of a a fundamental Red Bull weakness and? and basically punish that short-term mentality that Braun referenced. Yeah, there's probably a little bit of both. Although Red Bull made that decision to focus on pushing on through the second half of the season, we do have to remember that the lag in development 
systems means that also by the time Red Bull perhaps realised that Mercedes had had backed off, there wasn't actually that much time to uh, to redeploy any of that resource because they'd already used uh, a significant chunk of that. We must remember though that Mercedes did have a run of eight pole positions in nine races. And although the conversion rate for victories was was not great, with only three wins from those eight uh, pole positions, it wasn't unreasonable for Red Bull to crack on to ensure it won the title, given the fact that Mercedes' pace was strong, even if it wasn't turning it into points. All credit to Mercedes for having discipline and the capacity for strategic, for strategic thought to ensure that it did devote that time into making sure it was in a strong position for, for 14 and actually, they also benefited from being able to get on top of some of the, the rear thermal degradation problems that they had with the tyres using the 2013 car. So they were still learning as well. To be honest, though, I don't think the 2014 Red Bull was particularly a, a problem chassis-wise. They were about 0.9% off. The Renault engine package wasn't strong. So I think it would be probably rewriting history a little bit to suggest that Red Bull completely dropped the ball chassis-wise and that was a big part of them not losing. I actually think, all things considered, Red Bull, certainly the Red Bull team side, did a pretty good job in, in 2014. They won three races still. They were always the ones that picked up the pieces when things went wrong for uh, Mercedes in races like Canada, Spa. So, yeah, I, I think we have to kind of balance it up a little bit. But certainly... Red Bull were keen to, to hammer on. And to be fair to them, they won 13 races in 2013. They've only won 16 races in the whole of this, this engine package era. So you kind of have to say maybe that, in retrospect, wasn't a, a bad decision for them. But yeah, I think Red Bull also had an idea that they'd be struggling to a certain extent with the, with the engine as well, because obviously there was plenty of, of talk about where people were at. There was still the, the wide feeling that Mercedes would be in a very strong position, even though obviously things were still very much behind the scenes. There was a lot of furious paddling going on underwater, should we say, as you talked about with the the crisis meetings, etc. So it's a number of, of factors, really. And I think the chassis in 2014 is a little bit ov- overlooked, maybe for Mercedes, but I don't think Red Bull was... Uh, I don't think Red Bull dropped the ball in terms of the car when it comes to 2014. Maybe um, maybe Red Bull actually had more foresight than anyone gives them credit for. They knew that they were going into this lean period and they wanted to make hay while the sun shone and just win as many races as possible uh, towards the end of, uh, of 2013, as you, as you pointed out there, Ed. But while we can't say for certain what Red Bull did and didn't do in terms of putting their best foot forward, we know that the Mercedes master plan is, is well underway and, and, and they're at least doing everything that they can and they're in control of. To, to give themselves the best opportunity for, for 2014. So into the into the final throws of 2013, Mercedes is well advanced with chassis preparation and it's obviously redoubled its efforts on the engine side and pushing immensely hard to iron out the many kinks that it, it still had there. And actually the reliability setbacks through the engine development were, were regular for Mercedes and, and pretty spectacular. And because of time pressures, Mercedes wasn't actually getting the full learning out of each test engine before it committed to, to the next one. It would... It would put one on the dyno, basically run what it could, learn what it could. But then when it blew up, you'd basically have to reset and go again. You couldn't just finish the the, the program that, that you'd just started. So Mercedes was trying to get like 90%, 95% out of lots and lots of iterations rather than stay on one iteration until it got 100% of its learnings as it, as it could out of that. This was all deliberate, but the setbacks put enormous pressure on on capacity. And 
It meant that all the new hardware being deployed was to the reliability side of the operation to fix the problems. And on the performance side, they were basically feeding off scraps using older, tired hardware that lasted a very short while before breaking. And Mercedes could have decided that the performance level reached in the summer of 2013 would be the level it committed to for Melbourne. But here's Cow explaining why it didn't do that. One thing that uh, really did impress me in in that journey was that the performance development group didn't give up. The performance development group didn't in the summer say, well, the performance level that we've got now is all we're going to go racing with in Melbourne. And they came up with a a performance update in December um, that could be applied to the hardware without, you know, without needing an all new cylinder head. It was it was you know, relatively small component changes, but a decent performance update. And I remember I was, uh, I went to Stuttgart and I says, well, we've got a, we've got a performance upgrade. What do you think? Should we go for it? We actually need a little bit more money to do that because we're, um, we need to buy some extra bits that we hadn't planned for. What do you think? And it's like, mm-hmm. hey, go for it. Um, and, um, that, that was a, that, that was enjoyable. Um, and there was, uh, there was, a. Another performance update that came partway through um, Bahrain. I think it was the first or second day of Bahrain at lunchtime. We we uh, we w- literally wound in a performance update, which was one of the biggest performance updates I've ever seen. But performance is one thing, and it doesn't really matter how much horsepower uh, and kilowatts the the hybrid engine is is producing if the engine can't make it to the end. And the test failures, as we said, were many. And we also said they were spectacular. One in particular of the first race variant involved the the crank gear coming off, breaking into multiple pieces and taking out the whole timing drive at the front of the engine before the engine had even hit 50 kilometers. But this was part of a strategy to expose the engine's unreliability and it, and it paid off. Basically, Cal was running around threatening to take wire cutters to all of these support systems that were keeping the engine alive. He he wanted to run the engine in the factory as if it was in a car, so using a wireless telemetry link to observe all of the data so you could have fuel and uh, and air going in and and basically nothing else rather than have it hooked up to, to keep the engine alive as long as possible. The idea was that if it broke, it broke, and then you could work out what the problem was and then fix that problem. It was a a conscious decision to combine computer simulation with punishing physical tests of the hardware and then finding out what they didn't know. And it turned out there was a lot that they didn't know, big and small, right up to and including testing. At the first test at at Jerez, Ferrari caught Cal's eye because the the car was coming into the garage and they were stopping in the box and pulling away. And Mercedes, Cal says, couldn't do that. They couldn't do these live pullaways at the first test because they hadn't done the calibration work. Ed, as someone who wasn't around at the time of the first test, I've got to ask, how bizarre was it to be in Spain and see so many incredible £100 million and more organisations in crisis, struggling to do installation laps, cutting emergency cooling holes in in, in bodywork? Have you ever seen anything like that in Formula One? Yeah, it was truly surreal. I can still remember being there on the first morning with with Gary Anderson. We were there for Autosport. We were hanging around in the pit lane because there'd been some uh, car reveals in the morning, as there often are, photographs. And then normally what happens is the pit lane opens and cars gradually start to go out. But what happened here is the green light went on and we were still just hanging around in the pit lane, in a live pit lane for a live circuit, just sort of having a chat because absolutely nothing was happening. Uh, eventually, of course, Mercedes did get out first. By then, we'd moved up to the uh, to just be on the pet exit. So we thought it'd be nice to see the first car roll out in a, an official session, shall we say. 
of of this era. Although certainly Mercedes had done a, a filming day at Silverstone just before that, so they they had run. So yeah, Mercedes went out, started racking up the laps. It's all going very nicely for them until Hamilton suffered a front wing problem and crashed after eighteen laps at, at turn one. So it, it was just a, a really hilarious day just to put some numbers on it 93 laps we saw on the first day of testing now that's for across all cars now 93 laps would be a reasonable day's work for a first day of testing for a team now although we do see teams going well beyond that so 93 laps that's about seven percent of what we saw on day one of testing this year across all the teams when it was 1358 laps so that puts it into context it was a a rather quiet day and all through testing, in fact, I can remember distinctly this often happening at Bahrain. You could go up to the Red Bull garage and the doors would be shut and you could hear hammering and soaring and all sorts of things going on to try and make the car run and not overheat, etc. It, it really did seem inconceivable at Harath that these teams would be able to put on a Grand Prix. What would it have been about six six weeks later, they were in Melbourne. And even through Bahrain testing, there were, there were concerns. And Teams went to uh, to Australia without having done practice race starts, for example. I don't think any of the Renault teams have done it, for example. I remember watching um, one of the Toro Rosso drivers by their by their pit box trying to do kind of a proper live pull away. They just couldn't do it properly. It was just nowhere near. And you thought there was just no way this was going to work. And even going to Australia, I thought it was going to be a question of if you get to the finish, you're going to get points. I was thinking it's going to be five cars by the end. But astonishingly, and we've talked about this ability of F1 to really drive development, there were still 14 cars running at the chequered flag in Australia. I think one of them, Jill Bianchi, had lost too much ground to be classified. But that was unbelievable. And, and at Harath that first day, you thought, no way will they be able to, to run a Grand Prix with these cars. It would just be a, a farcical kind of old days, get to, the, get to the finish three laps down and you're going to be in, in fourth place kind of job. And it's testament to the job everyone did in fact, that they managed to turn that all around. And of course, preeminent in that was what Mercedes did, because even though they had a hell of a lot to get through, you could still tell right at the start they were still in in the better shape. Best of a bad bunch, shall we say. Yeah, and before we move on, actually, um, I w- I'll, I'll bring Mark back in, because obviously at the, at the top of the podcast, Mark, you pointed out that, that Melbourne was your first experience of, of these cars. I remember in 2014, later in the year, tuning into the first ever Formula E race in Beijing. One of the reasons I wanted to watch it was out of morbid curiosity because I'd heard all sorts of rumours about how immature and unready the tech was. And I was just curious to see if any of them actually made it off the line. I mean, F1's obviously in a slightly different position, but given Melbourne was your first experience, what was the what what was it? Was Was, was it anticipation? Were you... Was there any morbid curiosity from your side to see just how disastrous the new V6 era was going to begin? Oh, there was a bit. There was definitely concern. Would all the cars get off got off the line? Would there be start line incidents? Would have to be a second start? Um, how many cars would still be running at the end? No, that was definitely all part of the tension in the build-up to that race. So, yeah, we were stepping into the unknown. And, yeah, it was a, a pleasant surprise that it all went off as, as, as it did. And you've got to remember, there were problems because the famous start for Kevin Magnussen when his car snapped to the left, he did go on to finish second. But that was, I forget the precise reason, but it wasn't quite the power delivery that was anticipated. So maybe there's a parallel universe where he he didn't do a sensational job to gather it up. And instead of finishing on the podium, everyone's going, oh, you've caused a massive pile up, you idiot. But that was all engine driven. So it shows how these fine lines impact things. Yeah. And of course, that was a, a Mercedes engine in the back of the uh, of the McLaren. 
Ed, we'll, we'll take it back a little bit from from Melbourne. As you as you pointed out, it was clear as testing continued that Mercedes was was edging ahead. The mileage increased, the the lap times dropped, and basically the Mercedes engine was obviously the benchmark, and but the chassis was proving pretty handy as well. And I think by the time testing had finished, Mercedes powered cars had topped eleven of the twelve days, and they were leagues clear in the in the mileage stakes. But as Melbourne approached, uh, Mercedes was still worried about how many more young failures might still arise. They were still learning different things. And, and and the concern was that when the season started and Bricksworth is on the other side of the world, you're not going to be able to to pull a, a rabbit out of a hat. It's basically just going to be if something breaks, you have to replace it and just hope that you don't run out of uh, of components. And basically, Mercedes admits that pretty much every system wasn't tested to the degree that they'd have liked, which added up to the most uncertain start of a season that that even Mercedes can can remember. Ed, it's it's very easy to underestimate how much was new about these engines, isn't it? Because it meant a lot of discovering what didn't work rather than just what did. Yeah, it's always the way with new technologies. The design process isn't a straight line, much as you'd like it to be. Ideally, you'd want to say, right, we do that, we do that, we solve this, that, the other. Everything works nicely on the timeline, and bang, we've got a viable product. But you've not only got to solve problems, but you've also got to discover unknown problems, find out the questions you never knew you needed to answer. These engine packages are tricky because you've got multiple components in the energy regime. You've got the V6 itself, the MGUK, the turbocharger, the MGUH. Change one, it has an impact on the other. You've also got question marks over the over the, the, the energy store, the batteries, and obviously the temperature management across the board is a really big thing. If you get more power, say, out of one element or another, suddenly you might be putting energy in at a faster rate into, into the K or into the batteries. Suddenly you have temperature problems. But there's, there's all sorts of areas where you can have knock-on effects, shall we say. So every time you improve one thing, they're not completely modular, even though they're regarded as such. You can't think of these engines as a series of elements all kind of independently contributing to a, to a central output. It's more of a circle. So this multiplies the complexity and the, the potential for, for problems to arise. And when you're in a design regime like you have for Formula One, when it, when it is all incredibly fast, these parameters move very, very, very quickly and you can't anticipate all of them. And that's the process that was going through. So when Mercedes talk about how difficult it was, how far behind they were, they're not exaggerating. They will have hit countless problems during this process, far more than they could ever have predicted. So it's all about stumbling upon those and solving them and then seeing how much you might have to roll back on something if, if you've gone in a way that's not solvable or if you change parameter X, what does it mean for parameters A to X? <laughs> you know, it, it's that complicated and doing that quickly is the is the real challenge. Formula One is very, very good at doing that. And Mercedes were excellent at, at doing that. But it's it's just hugely compli- complicated. And it, it's easy to think of these engines as, oh, there's an engine, and then you've got the Erz bit on it, so you've got two bits. But it's it's so much more complicated than, than that, on top of the fact you're running it in a pretty hostile environment in terms of all the other stuff that's going on in a Formula One car with the the vibrations, the the, the loads it's got to take, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's all these different inputs that you have to be be dealing with. Yeah, and that's why Cal was so keen to to basically embrace the vulnerability of the engine during the development phase, rather than rather than keep it alive and you know manage temperatures perfectly and just try and put it through, through as little duress as possible. He just wanted to see what it was exposed to, including things like 
letting the temperature rise so it could see how the engine reacted to being under the under the bodywork under the engine cover and and, and what the consequences of that were and this obviously worked because uh, the works cars finished far more often than, than than they didn't, and it meant that that Hamilton and Nico Rosberg were almost invariably fighting out for for the win. Obviously, Hamilton did suffer that problem in the opening round in in Australia, so so Cal's fears were were quite clearly justified. I think that was one of the uh, classic examples of a team then blaming like a two pound part or something um, afterwards. So. Once Mercedes had sort of pushed through through that, it was a big setback for the, for, the, for the works team on one side, but they were clearly starting 2014 in much better shape than the opposition. And the car's performance became very, very clear very early on. Uh, Owen says that Bahrain 2014 was the first manifestation of that because in the first couple of races, Mercedes had been careful with the engine and it had also been trying to push a little less through the corners because as Ed mentioned with the development of the 2013 car, the tyre issues that had been blighted by in the past were still there. And by 2014, Mercedes thought it had made a decent step in understanding this, but it wasn't 100% sure these had been solved. So basically, Mercedes is sort of reining it in, partly deliberately, partly because they can. But then Hamilton and Rosberg go at each other absolutely hammer and tong in Bahrain, duking it out all race, but it's that last phase of the race under the safety car that really shows what the Mercedes is capable of. The late safety car compresses the field and on lap 46, Sergio Perez is in the Force India in third place and he's 1.7 seconds off the lead. One lap later, he's 4.4 seconds behind and by the flag 10 laps later, 24 seconds behind. Mark Cow says he was torn during this race between the emotions of an excited fan thinking, this is brilliant and a fretting engineer thinking, this is the last thing we need. How brutal a show of Mercedes' true potential was Bahrain? Yeah, that's when we saw the true scale of their advantage because of the internal scrap between the drivers. The gloves came off and it was massive. Um, it also made it apparent that the only hope of an interesting season was if Mercedes continued to allow its drivers to scrap like that. And you just knew it wouldn't be allowed to continue at that intensity. They are going to have to find ways around it, either with strategies or internal rules. They, they did continue to fight it out, but maybe never quite with that intensity again. Um, in, in that fight, um, Rosberg had used um, a mode that wasn't permitted. He'd, he'd sort of veered into territory where it was supposed to be reserved for qualifying in trying to get past Lewis. And Lewis found this out afterwards. And so in his subsequent scrap with Rosberg in Barcelona, he he did the same. Um, and they had to have the riot act read to them about, you know, using modes when um, not not permitted. And so you can imagine on top of the um, engineer's angst about this very new technology, they're just finding out the, the, the you know, extreme parameters of the envelope. You, you also had two drive, ill-disciplined drivers um, nudging in the territory that they weren't even supposed to be in. So, yeah, I can, I can imagine his concern. The fact that it was the works Mercedes cars that were streaking clear at the at the beginning and that the car that they were escaping from was a, a Mercedes customer probably disguised the helped disguise the, the the job the car was doing as well. Because what's interesting is that though races like Bahrain and, and also Montreal, where Rosberg almost won despite losing the MG UK, they showed the quality of the overall package, but the easy conclusion was still that Mercedes was only winning because of the engine rules and that when the others caught up on the engine side, Mercedes would be under pressure, especially from Red Bull. 
But there was no frustration internally at the team that the, that the engine was winning all the plaudits. And this was partly because Brackley recognised the brilliance of what Bricksworth had made, but it was also because letting rivals think it was all the engine actually became a deliberate ploy. This is what John Owen says about basically making everybody think it was just the engine. It was an act of policy by us because the thing about the chassis is just about all of its performance things are on show for everybody else to copy. Whereas the power unit, it's all hidden. Nobody really knows how the power unit is that powerful, you know, what combustion technology you've got. They can only speculate. Maybe they recruit somebody who knows something about it. But it's it's locked inside the engine. There's nothing you can see really on the outside. Um, so letting the other teams believe that it was all about the engine was something we were keen to do because for years people copied Red Bull aerodynamically. They all did a Red Bull copy and that suited us just fine. Um, you know, that was something we were quite keen to encourage. And um, if that meant talking down the chassis and bigging up the engine, then we were more than happy to do that. Owen says that Mercedes' efforts to conceal the effectiveness of the car actually extended well beyond that that first season and, and through the early years of the engine era. Uh, Mercedes would run lower wing levels than its rivals to make the engine look better on the straights, which I'm sure is going to delight Ed. One of the big things that Ed always warns is reading too much into speed trap figures and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it seems to have worked for a really long time, not just the start of the engine era, because it's only really this season that Mercedes homages have started to become more commonplace on, on the rival teams. Several now have adopted the Mercedes narrow nose and Racing Point's obviously gone the whole hog with a, with a full-scale copy. Ed, was this the greatest trick Mercedes ever pulled, contributing to the myth that Red Bull was still the benchmarking car design and basically directing people away from the, the tricks that, that Brackley were producing? I quite like your use of the word homage there. Perhaps Racing Point should have argued that. These aren't Mercedes brake ducts, they're a homage. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I wouldn't perhaps weight it quite as heavily in terms of characterising it that way. But yes, it's certainly correct to say the Mercedes power unit wasn't so good that it won on its own. But you can see by looking at the performance of all the Mercedes powered cars that they were generally relatively strong that also gives you a, a benchmark so williams was the best mercedes customer 0.9 percent off mclaren was 1.4 percent off of course india about two percent over the season red bull as i said before still a decent chassis aero wise but there's always the complexity because we talk about pace power unit corrected should we say so theoretically the car has the same power what's its lap time but it's never that simple because we do talk about the package and the compromises, etc., and that's that's a big part of it. And we've talked about the importance of the integration across Bricksworth and Brackley, and that's also part of it as well. So we can't completely separate the chassis and the engine, shall we say? But there has been a trend for Red Bull in particular to be seen as at the vanguard of aero design, and people have gone that way. I think more recently. The way the rules have gone, particularly some of the changes last year, that the the potency of the higher rake approach has been slightly mitigated by the 2019 aero changes. So maybe that's helped Mercedes a bit. But what's so important for Mercedes is that they've hit on the right design concepts for the right reasons and not got got carried away with change for change's sake over this period. And that's the genius of good design, isn't it? It's not to get sucked into unnecessary tricks and wild innovations. It's about identifying the correct balance, understanding a set of rules, the reasons why you're doing things, and just having a proper 
methodical process for going through it, which sounds really dull, but actually it's completely the opposite. And it's amazing what Mercedes has managed to do in this regard. And myself and Mark have interviewed James Allison together in the past, and he'll always talk about this and say, well, if you go down, say, a high rake approach, yeah, there's potential gains, but you take steps back to do it. So are you justified in terms of the long-term gains you'll you'll get from it? I think Mercedes have just been very, very sure-footed, should we say. And yeah, you can say it's easy to do that when you're the dominant team. But let's not forget, they were pushed very, very hard by Ferrari, 2018 in particular, and then a few times in 2019. And obviously in that period, there's a, a big asterisk against the Ferrari performance engine-wise. But still, Mercedes stood firm, stuck by the principles, didn't panic. So we've always seen that. And there have been innovations um, in this period as well, like the the, the Super Ted Cape, as they called it when it first came out in 2017, which is under the nose. Um, that's now de rigueur in Formula One. That's a Mercedes innovation. They've been very, very aggressive with what they've done with their suspension design, etc. So it's it's not kind of a, a it's it's never been an okay car with a great engine. It's always at least been a good car. But sort of circling back to 2014, I think you can still probably make a case that the 2014 Red Bull was the equal of the Mercedes, maybe even slightly better if you want to boil it down just to aero wise. But again, it's the whole package, isn't it? Mercedes was the superior team across the board because of the package it was able to field and that's reflected in the results. Yeah, I think the significance of what um what Mercedes did was basically hold itself level with Red Bull in terms of capabilities of designing a, a proper racing car and it's it's edged ahead uh, in in the years that that followed and as you alluded to there there's there's no silver bullet within it. There's no one thing you can really point to on the car side to say that's what made that car great. Um in 2014, they did have uh, what Owen describes as pretty adventurous front suspension that actually left him a little bit worried how it would react under braking at, at, at the front. This was quite an important aspect of the W05's aero concept. Uh, it required a very narrow span front lower wishbone, which um, Owen confesses didn't really look like it, it, it should work. And that's not, in itself, that's not the reason that Mercedes then went on to win more races and titles after 2014. But Basically, their idea was the longer you can keep people off the scent of the individual parts, then they're never going to be able to match you with the end sum either. But the fact that Mercedes has racked up seven straight constructors' titles and a century of wins and, and counting across two major aero rule sets, we, we should point out as well, shows that the organi- organisation has become a proper powerhouse, not one that just opportunistically took advantage in 2014 with a great engine and had a brief spell of glory. And a big part of that is because of the Mercedes culture that we hear so much about today, which can be traced back to that mentality shift, which almost a decade ago now, and the shift in mindset within the team. It it built reassurance, confidence and trust, which not only allowed them to have some tough conversations about what was going wrong, but it also encouraged staff to attempt difficult things without fear of failure. Mark, is it fair to say that without this attitude that had been entrenched in Brackley and Bricksworth, that Mercedes wouldn't be a team capable of making a split turbo or a dual axis steering system or trick rear suspension or any of the things we don't even know about. Absolutely, yes. So that that lack of fear of failure it just gives the group huge confidence and just builds on itself. So it's an environment where big concepts come out into the open rather than remain as an intriguing half thought in someone's mind. And while Andy Cowell rightly takes a lot of the credit for instilling that sort of environment. Ross Braun's part in it should also be acknowledged, as should the 
lieutenants like Bob Bell, they, they also bought fully into it. And the, that whole group was just marinated in that ethos and it just, it just you know, surrounded the whole place. And that's, that's the environment that's been there ever since, really. Yeah, and Owen says that Toto Wolf, who obviously then came in while um, came in in 2013, big big decisions had already been made to put Mercedes on that path. But he was then a huge part of that culture. We we've seen plenty of times that he doesn't blame people when things go wrong. And Ed Toto's actually joked quite a lot that Mercedes working practices sound like tree hugging exercises at times, but. While culture is a bit of an abstract concept to some people, it's absolutely vital, isn't it? Yeah, it's essential and it's founded upon a number of fundamentals. Mercedes have put a great deal of effort into ensuring that the different departments in the team have a greater understanding for what each other's doing, what they contribute. And that's that's really important because you can end up in a situation where even if the design and race teams are working well together, which is difficult enough, other aspects are neglected. Try and design and run a championship winning Grand Prix car without your commercial department getting the cash in, without your PR department contributing to to that. Mercedes conceptualises the whole operation as, as a virtuous circle, should we say. So every stage amplifies the next and so and so and so on and so on. So you get this uh, this momentum build, built up. It's difficult to create that, and Wolf is essential to that because a significant number of people in that kind of position simply do not have that mentality. Understanding the fact that problems will arise and it's how you respond to them is critical because too often people in that situation just see everything as, oh, these people are causing me problems, et cetera, et cetera. Just do that, do that. It's not that simple. You can have big problems when it becomes politicised, and it's really important that if there's a problem, people are willing to stick up their hands and say, right, okay, hang on a minute, yeah, we think we've got a bit of an issue here with this, and then you get into working it out rather than just trying to paper over the cracks. A lot of Grand Prix teams, a lot of organisations of any type have problems with this. A simple-minded leadership tends to react negatively to these sorts of problems, but the one Mercedes has is much more nuanced, doesn't get sucked into that blame culture. So you solve your problems and you do get that impact of working together. And when you're talking about an organisation of this size, there are huge numbers of people, a huge number of departments that could be pitted against each other as they compete for resources. Human beings are very good at being competitive. It's one of the reasons as a species we've worked well, we've evolved in this way, but it can be counterproductive. And it's controlling that with that sort of intelligence and that and that ability to, to manage that's so important. Wolf has... It's kind of a light touch management in many ways in that he's he's leaving people to get on with their jobs, but he's making sure that the interaction and the communication, everything is done in the right way. Really, really difficult to do. Very, very important not to underestimate not only his role in that, but also the capacity of the department heads and those working under them to buy into it too. Yeah, we'd need to do an entire uh, other podcast um, to, to really dig into what um, Owen and, and Cal had to say about about the culture, but suffice to say that they they believe it's absolutely everything, and uh, yeah, really under underpins all of their success. But maybe that is a is, is a good podcast for for the off season, so you can bank that one in your in your ideas diary. Ed, um, there's all sorts of moments and milestones we could pick out from the V6 Turbo Hybrid era to illustrate Mercedes' brilliance. Um, well, while those of you listening are probably a little sick of uh, seeing Mercedes win so much, hopefully what we've covered over the last hour or so has been an interesting insight into the incredible origin story of that domination. And I want to end with a question to, to both of you. You were there for the start of the Mercedes era. You're still here now. 
They've not driven you out of F1, even though it must feel like Groundhog Day at, at times. So to finish, uh, Mark, go to you first. What's the standout Mercedes moment in this era for you? For me, ironically, it's a race they didn't win, Canada 2014. Um, this is when the control electronics of both cars failed, causing Hamilton's retirement with no brakes after the fluid boiled on the rears. Rosberg got more front bias onto the brakes sooner, allowing him, allowing to at least keep the car alive, but he was running minus the 160 horsepower of electrical boost. But he was still leading the race, and he was setting times about the same as the Mercedes engine McLarens were setting with perfectly healthy power units, given another indication of the quality of the car and the comparative quality of the car to, to its rivals. And it took until late in the race before Daniel Ricciardo was able to, to pounce on Rosberg for the win. So for me, that just told of how on the edge this whole package was and the frantic activity below the calm surface and just underlined what a massive achievement it was. Plus, Rosberg's times compared to McLaren's emphasised how great this car was. It's, it was a whole deal right through its whole DNA. So for me, that was the most significant and um, meaningful of, the, of the, the, that era. When you said uh, a race they didn't win, I assumed you were going to go for Spain 2016. But obviously, the the opening lap of Barcelona what doesn't really stand as one of the defining moments of Mercedes' brilliance. Unless Ed, your moment is Spain twenty sixteen, and you're about to explain exactly why. No, there, there is a tendency actually in this era to always think about the races they didn't win because the default is that Mercedes wins. But I'm actually going to go back to Australia twenty fourteen because remember there was all this uncertainty going into the race, and they lost Lewis Hamilton very, very early in that race. He, he lost a cylinder. This was down to just a, a, a minor problem with the uh, the kind of the, the tube, the rubber part, the rubber tubing that sort of holds the, the spark plug that it caused a short and led to uh, Hamilton retiring. And that was a problem they'd apparently not encountered at any stage. So there was this extra kind of peril, or will it actually work? And this was the confirmation that Mercedes had nailed it because also in that race, we did see strong performances from other Mercedes engine cars. We saw the the McLaren ultimately finish second and third because Daniel Ricciardo finished second on the road but was disqualified for exceeding the fuel flow limit, which again showed that was something Mercedes was on top of that, that Renault and Red Bull were not able to be on top of. We saw Bottas putting in a charging performance after, after clipping the wall. So it just confirmed everything we'd suspected about what Mercedes had done and, and laid the foundations for this era but with that little bit of peril even though Rosberg controlled the race all the way through the fact that Hamilton had hit trouble right at the start created that uncertainty so that that's probably connected to the fact that I just remember so vividly that first day of testing when nothing worked it's the Australia race that that sticks in the mind that well that feels like a, a fitting place to to end thank you to to Ed and to Mark for for your insight in this podcast, if you like this special feature and you want to discover more, you can check out a couple of in-depth long reads on the race website. Just head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen to find those. And you can head to our YouTube channel for a video on eight of the best unheard stories behind Mercedes Rise to Power. That should be live by the time this podcast comes out. But if it's not, have a little bit of patience. We've worked our video editor, Luke Hinsel, quite hard on this. So, so it might take a little bit of time to, to upload Otherwise, all that's left for me to say is, is thank you, Ed, for allowing me to indulge myself in playing host. And a, a big thanks to those of you listening to another episode of the Race F1 podcast. Normal service will resume next week with Ed back in charge for our coverage of F1's return to Istanbul for the Turkish Grand Prix, where Lewis Hamilton has a chance to clinch the 2020 driver's title. See you then. Music.